Good morning. Thank you for joining us. I am Pastor Ransom Kent. I am back uh, from a lovely vacation with my family, and we are continuing here in the, the series that we have been going through this summer, the Kings of Summer. We find ourselves in 2 Kings chapter 17 this morning. 2 Kings chapter 17. I'll be reading to you verses 6 through 18 from the English Standard Version. I'm going to read that to you. Follow along as I read. I'll pray for us, and we'll jump right into the sermon. Again, this is 2 Kings 17, starting in verse 6. In the ninth year of Hosea, the king of Assyria captured Samaria, and he carried the Israelites away to Assyria and placed them in Halah and on the Haber and on the river Gozen and in the cities of the Medes. And this occurred because the people of Israel had sinned against the Lord their God, who had brought them out of, up out of the land of Egypt from under the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and had feared other gods, and walked in the customs of the nations whom the Lord drove out before the people of Israel, and in the customs that the kings of Israel had practiced. And the people of Israel did secretly against the Lord their God things that were not right. They built for themselves high places in all their towns, from watchtower to fortified cities. They set up for themselves pillars and ashram on every high hill and under every green tree. And there they made offerings on all the high places as the nations did whom the Lord carried away before them. And they did wicked things, provoking the Lord to anger. And they served idols of which the Lord had said to them, You shall not do this. Yet the Lord warned Israel and Judah by every prophet and every seer, saying, Turn from your evil ways and keep my commandments and my statutes in accordance with all the law that I commanded your fathers and that I sent to you by my servants, the prophets. But they would not listen, but they were stubborn as their fathers had been, who did not believe in the Lord their God. They despised his statutes and his covenant that he made with their fathers and the warnings that he had given them. They went after false idols and became false. And they followed the nations that were around them, concerning whom the Lord had commanded them that they should not do like them. And they abandoned all the commandments of the Lord their God and made for themselves metal images of two calves. And they made an Asherah and worshipped all the hosts of heaven and served Baal. And they burned their sons and daughters as offerings and used divination and omens, and sold themselves to do evil in the sight of the Lord, provoking Him to anger. Finally, verse 18, Therefore the Lord was very angry with Israel, and removed them out of His sight. None was left but the tribe of Judah only. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let me pray for us. Lord, as we study this low, dark moment in the history of Your people, I pray that Your Gospel would shine forth. Lord, that's the benefit of this strange time as we worship virtually together each week. Your message goes out to places it, it may not have gone before, and I pray that this morning, that someone would hear the gospel in a different way they had not heard it before from this story of the Israelites being exiled from their nation. Lord, I pray that you would give us open hearts, attentive ears, and uh, the focus that you would have us have uh, this morning to hear your word and be blessed by it. We pray these things in the name of your son, Jesus Christ. Amen. So, Israel is exiled. So the northern kingdom, not Judah, the northern kingdom, the ten tribes 
that, that uh, from the split after Solomon, Rehoboam, when he split the kingdoms from, from his uh, hubris, his arrogance, the northern kingdom that split off has now been exiled. Assyria has come in. They've conquered Israel and they've removed the people. For you, for you folks who like history, this is a very important date in biblical history. This is 722 B.C., 722 years before the advent of Christ. And so here... Israel is taken away. After a long line of rebellious kings, it finally happens. It finally happens. They are taken away from the land of promise by the Assyrians. Now, here's what's important about this. The Assyrians, each nation in, in, the, in the Middle East in these ancient times had their own foreign policies for conquered peoples. The Assyrians uh, specifically did mass deportations. So how, as you're a conquering nation, the question is, how do you keep control of the people that you conquer? For the Assyrians, they, they decided to take the people out of their land, send other people into it, and, and scatter them amongst uh, their empire. And so that is what's happened to the Israelites. They have not just been conquered, they've been taken from their homes, taken from their land, taken from Israel, and scattered amongst the Assyrian Empire. You see all the places they were put here in verse number 6. Now, uh, this is a passage uh, that we have a tendency to skim past. And so uh, we talk about this around Easter, where we look at uh, Good Friday, and we say, as R.C. Sproul would say, we have a tendency to flatten the narrative. Because we know about the resurrection, because we know about what will occur later, we tend not to sit in the sadness and the darkness and the heaviness of Good Friday. This is one of those moments. We have a tendency to be just negligibly uh, sad or feel negligibly, negligibly bad about this exile. We, we, marginally bad. Yeah, okay, that's terrible. So sorry for them. But Let's allow ourselves to, to, to gain some understanding of what this was like for the people of Israel. Let me put it in these terms. So, you as a citizen of a, a, citizen of a once prosperous nation with the power of God in front and behind and all around you, this nation is no longer. It's no longer the nation of Israel. It's gone. It's something else. The town you knew and loved. You knew the, the, the specific places to go to eat and, and the places to go when you wanted quiet. and You knew the places where there was a good view somewhere. That is gone. Someone else is partaking in those places. Someone else is living in your home. You no longer have a nationality. I wrote here, you are an alien in a country that you do not recognize, you have no part in, and you do not belong to. Your friends, your neighbors, they're not the same people anymore. They've all been scattered to the wind. That's heavy. That is a low, dark moment for the people of God. A low, dark moment. And at face value, if we look at this passage, it could seem like the promise of God has failed. But you have to skip over a lot of context to, to arrive there. So let's remember, what's the message of First and Second Kings? There's several things. We've been kind of harping on these things as we've gone along. First, human kings won't cut it. Human kings cannot lead God's people to God sufficiently. That's one thing we've learned from the kings. The second thing is that people left to their own devices cannot serve God faithfully. They can't do it. And most importantly, we've been coming back to this and back to this and back to this. Above all those things, the Word of God is true. And so we have this scenario where the people of God 
have been removed from the promised land. And, and I think that's actually a really good image. The land is still there. It's occupied by someone else. The people have been taken away from it. And so while the people have broken their side of the covenant, we'll talk about this in a moment in more detail, while they have failed to live up to the, the, the request, the commands of God, the, the prerequisites to keep the promised land, that God's promises are still there. The land still exists. God's Word is true. And so what I want to do this morning is a different kind of sermon. Uh, we're going to look at several conclusions that we can make about the exile, or through the exile that we read about here. And so we're going to go through those things uh, rather rapidly, but I want to uh, just cover those things this morning. So first, conclusions. The first conclusion that we can come to as we read this passage from 2 Kings 17, 6-18 is that the promised land of Israel wasn't permanent. The promised land of Israel was not permanent. See, the physical existence of an Israel in this place and in this time was solely dependent upon the Israelites' ability on their own to obey God's laws. That's how the promised land would stay in existence. So we rewind to Deuteronomy 11. God says, Moses is reminding the, the second generation of Israelites to be saved from Egypt. The first generation was so unfaithful and they angered God so, he said, you will never see the promised land. So they have died in the desert. This is the second generation of Israelites out of Egypt. And this is Moses reminding them of the covenant that God made with them. And in a brief statement, he says, see, I am setting before you today a blessing and a curse. The blessing, if you obey the commandments of the Lord your God, which I command you today, and the curse, if you do not obey the commandments of the Lord your God, but turn aside from the way that I am commanding you today to go after other gods that you have not known. So, the, the promised land wasn't permanent. Why? Because the people had to hold on to obedience. It never was guaranteed forever no matter what. No, it was guaranteed to be with God in that place as long as you remained faithful to God as the message to Israel. But as soon as you turn from God and worship other idols, the curse will come, and that is your removal from the promised land. Now we can't say that in this blessing and curse formula that we see here that God is being harsh or unreasonable. We have to remember to remember, what has God done? Not only has God gone before the Israelites and, and won the conquest of this land that wasn't theirs in the first place for them, but we are drawn back to this idea that, that God saved the people of Israel in the first place from Egypt, the Exodus. God was gracious to them in the Exodus. Look at verse 7. And this occurred, the carrying away of Israel from verse 6, because the people of Israel had sinned against the Lord their God and who is this God? The God that brought them out of the land of Egypt from under the hand of Pharaoh, the king of Egypt. So God had been gracious. God gave them the blessing up front. God gave them the blessing of calling them His people. God gave them graciously the blessing of this land and then said, because I have done these things, live faithfully toward Me. And we can learn the second conclusion, besides the fact that the promised land wasn't permanent, is that the rescue from Egypt was not a sufficient salvation. It wasn't enough. Well, what do you mean by that, Ransom? What do you mean the Exodus wasn't enough? Now, certainly, it was an incredible miracle in history. For sure, we are for sure of that. God saving this slave people by, by no means of their own to 
call them his people, but not trying to be flippant, a lot of good it did Israel again and again. What was the message from God to Israel as they strayed from worshiping him faithfully? I am the God who brought you out of Egypt. Remember, I am the God who brought you out of Egypt. Remember, I am the God who brought you out of Egypt. That's the thing that came out of every prophet's mouth that came to them. Remember what God has done for you graciously. Remember it. And what is the result? They shrugged it off. The the exodus, God's grand physical salvation of the people of Israel from slavery was not enough. It was not enough of a deterrent to keep them faithful to God. I was thinking about this, and it's almost like those people who think, well, if I could just win the lottery, then my life would be better. If I could just win the lottery, my life would be better. But the problem is, when you win all that money from the lottery, guess what comes with you? All your problems. It was the same for the Israelites. Yes, God had miraculously saved them in this glorious way that showed His power and His love and His grace. But the Israelites had the same hearts out of slavery that they had in slavery. They had the same broken hearts, the same problems. And this third conclusion I want to point out, we'll look at verses 8-11 through 11 to see it, is, is really the, the conclusion that undergirds the next several conclusions. And the, the, the conclusion is this, human hearts naturally hate God. Human hearts naturally hate God. And so what happened? God brought them out of Egypt. He cleared the people out, these idol-worshiping people, to give Israel the land. And what did He say? And they walked in the customs of the nations whom the Lord drove out before the people of Israel. And the customs of the kings of Israel had practice. They set up secret idols, or secret altars, uh, in, in opposition to God. They set forth for themselves pillars of the ashram in every high hill and under every green tree, and they made offerings in all the high places as the nations did whom the Lord carried away before them. They did all these wicked things, provoking the Lord to anger. God had done this great thing for them, and guess what? Their heart still wanted what it wanted, and it could not want God. So in history, up to this point, no people group had had more done for them by God than Israel. And what was the outcome of that investment of grace by God? Rejection. Rejection. In fact, we look at the prophet Jeremiah. So Jeremiah, we're going to fast forward a couple hundred years. He is, he is serving uh, God uh, in Judah, the, 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 le- the last tribe to not be in exile. And all the nations around them are, are, are still um, are closing in. And the people in Judah are still worshiping other gods. They're still unfaithful. And he pens this in Jeremiah 17. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? Jeremiah is looking at all that God had done. He had taken the ten tribes of Israel away as a punishment. And it was very clear what it was for. All these other nations were closing in and the people still, their hearts would not turn towards God. And he says, the heart must be sick. I don't understand it. And so the conclusion we can draw is that in its natural state, the human heart is rotten and it hates God. In its natural state, the human heart is rotten and it hates God. Unless something in the heart is changed supernaturally, no man, no woman can be a friend of God. We can't. We don't want it. Our hearts 
are naturally turned away from God or they naturally hate God. Now, again, like I said, this undergirds the next several conclusions. So because an unchanged human hearts are against God, the next conclusion is, God, although God is always speaking the truth, humans cannot listen on their own. Look at verses 12 through 14. So uh, Israel, again, is, is revolting against God secretly and publicly. They're worshiping other idols, and here's God speaking out. They served other idols, of which the Lord had said to them, you shall not do this. And in verse 13, yet the Lord warned Israel and Judah by every prophet and every seer, saying, turn away from your evil ways and keep my commandments. God is not silent. It's important to understand this. It's important to see that Israel is not blindly moving towards sin or blindly moving towards anti-God actions. No, God is all along calling out, this is wrong, follow me, I love you. Turn, turn, turn. This is the way towards curse, not blessing. And yet, what does it say? But they were stubborn, and they would not listen. It says in verse 14, the hearts of the Israelites were not receptive. They could not hear God's word. God sent his prophets. He sent miraculous signs. We talked about the drought and and the prophets of Baal facing off with Elijah just a couple weeks ago. And none of those things would turn the ear of the Israelites. Why? Because their hearts were set against God. It was to no avail. The next conclusion, again, because unchanged human hearts are against God, humans inevitably inevitably become what their heart is attuned to. Look at verse 15. There's a very fascinating phrase in here. I love it. They despised his statutes and his covenants that, that he made with their fathers and the warnings that he gave them. But listen to this. They went after false idols and became false. It's a great image. It's almost like you are what you eat. Now, I just got back from vacation, so right now I'm mostly fat, salt, sugar, and delicious. That's what I am right now. Um, but listen, they, it's the same thing. You are what you eat. You are what you worship. They, they became false, as it says here, because they worshiped false idols. They became what their heart was attuned to. Uh, Thomas Chalmers is a Scottish pastor from the Church of Scotland back in the late 17, early 1800s, and he has an essay out there called um, The Expulsive Power of a New Affection. It's free online. You can just... Type in expulsive power of a new affection, or even Thomas Chalmers, and you'll find it. Um, It's a great essay, uh, and and I'm going to just summarize here what he talks about there. His whole idea in this sermon or this essay is that the human heart must always be attached to something in love. The human heart needs love. And so if this glass of water is my love for the world, and I determine I'm not going to love the world any longer, I cannot actually let go of the world unless I grab on to something else, the Scripture sheet. And so, you can't stop loving something without loving something else. The heart will always attach itself to something that it loves. And as we love that thing, as our heart becomes attuned to that thing, we become that thing. And so they had worshipped false idols. They had put their hope and false hopes. They had hoped that by sacrificing all these things and doing these certain religious activities towards Baal or the Asherah or whatever, that, that these other things would happen. And because they had invested themselves in these false things for so long, 
they themselves had become false. Let me put it this way. This was a pseudo-people of God living in a pseudo-promised land. Were they actually people of God? No, they were people of the Baals. They were people of the Asherah. They were people of anything else. And did they live by the promise that God had given them? No, they had this other promise that they believed that was fake. And that was that if I worship these gods well enough, everything will turn out right for me. And so I propose that the exile, the the people of God being removed from the promised land is actually less of of a a punishment and more of a reckoning of what is actually true. If, If God's people were to live in His promised land, then this people could not be considered His people. They had become something else. False. And in the same way, again, because unchanged human hearts are against God and because what you focus on, what your heart is attuned to, you will become, we get this next conclusion. Unbelief begets sin and evil. Look at verses 16 and 17. This is egregious. We have to understand what's being said here. So the, 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 uh, the, the, the precipitating factor here in verse 16 is they abandon all the commandments of the Lord their God. So unbelief has occurred. Unbelief has occurred. They do not believe in God. They do not believe in His covenant. They do not believe that His commandments are worth following. And what happens next? Verse 17. And they burned their sons and daughters as offerings. They burned their sons and daughters as offerings. Understand, this is child sacrifice. The people of God in Israel sacrificing their children, their sons and daughters on the altars of false gods to get what they thought they wanted and get what they thought they needed. They had jumped headfirst into everything that was anti-God. No to God's commandments. No to God's covenant. No to God's promises. Yes to everything fake. And they had become the very evil that they worshipped. They'd become it. They'd become child sacrificers. The last conclusion that we can see here all, all these things we've seen is that sin must be punished. Sin is punished. That's a conclusion that we can make. God does not let sin slide. So all the things that have been building up and building up, we see here in verse 18. Therefore, that means everything we just talked about, here's the result. The Lord was very angry with Israel and removed them out of His sight. None was left but the tribe of Judah only. You see, God is God. God is king. God is just. Sin, these things that were committed, false worship, child sacrifice, denial of God's commandments, the Creator telling the created how to live, no we won't, all of these things had to be punished. God is just. And so what happened? They lost the promised land. They lost God's favor. They lost their kings. They, they lost their blessing. They lost all of it. They were sent off into a foreign land to start afresh. Here's what we have to remember. It was always going to be this way. I've said this a couple times in this series. It was always going to end like this for Israel. It was always going to end like this. God did not choose Israel 
as His final act of salvation. God didn't say, I'm going to save you from Egypt and then this is how it's going to be forever. No, this was uh, the first and partial revelation of God's grand salvation plan. We have to remember this. You see, all of these events, all of these uh, uh, tragedies, all of, of these false steps and missteps and, and bad kings and good kings, all of the, the story of the kings, the story of the Old Testament points toward one person, one event, one solution. Jesus Christ. It all points to Jesus. And in fact, if we reframe these conclusions that we've seen, in light of Jesus, we can gain a clear picture of God's salvation. It's called the Gospel. So that's what I'm going to do. It's how we're going to end this sermon. I'm going to go back through these conclusions briefly and show you how Jesus answers them. So first, let's start. The promised land wasn't permanent. Listen, physical blessing. Physical blessing was never God's end game. It's never God's intention. A land or riches or good crops or a powerful nation. This is not what God is aiming at. For salvation. That's not the ultimate goal of his, his salvation plan. Those are simply physical things. Rather, God used these real interactions with God's people in Israel as, as a precursor to his ultimate and, and immovable solution for salvation for his people. They were, the ultimate blessing, as you read about in Ephesians, you can go back and listen to that sermon series from last year, the ultimate thing that God wants to bring us are spiritual blessings. A spiritual inheritance. But Ephesians talks about if you are in Christ, you have every spiritual blessing. And it cannot be taken away from you. In Galatians 3, it says, if you are in Christ, then what? You are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise the, the promise of Abraham that, was, that the Israelites thought was the culmination of them being in the land was actually only halfway. It was a shadow. What is the ultimate fulfillment of the promise that God made to Abraham to be in Jesus Christ by faith? We are the recipients of the full promise by faith in Jesus. And now because a physical land of, of promise was never the final intention that we have to take a look at the Exodus and reiterate this, that conclusion that the rescue from Egypt was never a sufficient salvation. The Exodus was a shadow or a mist of real rescue. It's a mere scent, the hint of a flavor. As I was writing these words, all I could think about was uh, flavored seltzer water like LaCroix or LaCroix you want to say it that way, or whatever off-brand you drink. Uh, if you've ever had flavored seltzer water, you understand this concept. If you've ever had it, one Twitter user wrote it this way, LaCroix, or LaCroix, <laughs> I like saying it that way because there's no one in here and I can say it however I want. LaCroix tastes like you were drinking carbonated water and someone screamed out loud the name of a specific fruit from another room. Okay, so the flavor isn't actually the flavor. It's a hint it's a, it's a whiff of the flavor. The same goes for the Exodus as it compares to the cross of Jesus Christ. Certainly, the Exodus was this grand spectacle where a slave people being rescued by no means of their own power, will, or strength. It was, it was incredible. But, 
like we talked about before, along with the Israelites out of captivity came sin in their hearts. And they were never truly free. We can be freed from the powers and oppressions in this world, but until our hearts are free from sin, we are not free. And so I want to make sure I say this very carefully. Physical rescue in this world from slavery or oppression is never enough salvation. It's it's not true salvation. It's incomplete salvation. I think about Lazarus or even the boy that Elijah brought back from the dead several weeks ago as we were learning about the the works of Elijah and, and the kings. That boy died again. Lazarus, who Jesus brought back from the grave, died again. They were not free. Truly free. Yes, that was a miraculous work of resurrection. But it was not permanent. The same goes for the Exodus. The same goes for any release of earthly oppression or slavery in this world. Now, does that mean the church shouldn't work for it? No. We ought to stand in the way of oppression, church. We ought to do that. We ought to see the people of this world who have no voice be brought mercy from the church. That is something we ought to do. But we must not stop there. Because simply being freed from physical bonds is not true salvation. Only being rescued from the grip of our sin, only in that state can we truly be free. The real taskmaster, the real chains around us are our sin. It's our sin. We're enslaved by it. And the good news is this, that rescue has taken place again through Jesus Christ. He broke those bonds. He's he's changed the human heart. He's freed it from its sin, which brings us to this next conclusion. Remember that conclusion that undergirded several of those from, from our, the, the, the passage here, that the human heart in its natural state hates God. That has been changed by Jesus Christ. In His cross, through His cross, through His death and resurrection, Jesus secures the promise for us. How? By changing human hearts. A better exodus has taken place. A better promise has been given through Jesus Christ. And so no longer are we bound to just our human sinful nature that that rails against God and pushes against His demands and commands. No, God in His gracious blessing has changed our hearts through faith in Jesus Christ. Listen to 2 Corinthians 5.17 Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, He is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. What's that new thing? A new heart. You see, when we come to Jesus in faith and we say, I have a great need that I can't meet myself and only Jesus can meet it. When we say that and admit it, and we make Jesus our Lord, by faith in Christ we're given a new foundation. God rips out the old and puts in the new. And for the rest of our lives, we're kind of a renovation project. God is taking out the old, sinful, hateful, anti-God stuff and putting in new, holy, pure, loving God stuff. And because we're a renovation project, because we're being renovated by God's love, we can actually love God and serve Him and commit to Him in return. It's beautiful. What the Exodus did not do, the cross of Jesus Christ did do. 
It's given us this new heart. And because we have a new heart, and because God is still speaking the truth, as the next conclusion says, we can actually hear it and believe it. In John 10, it says this, when He has brought, all, uh, brought out all His own, He goes before them, and the sheep follow Him. Why? They know His voice. A stranger they will not follow, but they will flee from Him, for they do not know the voice of strangers. You see, by the power of the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, we've been given a new heart. And because we have a new heart, we can hear the Word of our Lord and know it's the Word of our Lord and follow it in obedience. It's been given to us freely, miraculously. The ability to hear the Word of God and to want to obey it is a miracle of God's Spirit. The only reason we can hear God's truth is because we have that new heart. And again, the, the dominoes keep falling. The, the conclusion from this is that human hearts inevitably become what their hearts are attuned to. Well, guess what? Since we have a new heart, Christian, our heart is attuned to what? Following Christ. We don't have to become the false things that we worshipped. We don't have to fall prey to they went after false idols and became false. No, we go after the real God, the real Jesus Christ, the real Father, the Son, and the Spirit. And because we go after it and our hearts are attuned to it by the work of God in our lives, we will become more real. More real. This is a supernatural work of Jesus on our hearts and our minds. We're destined to be more real. It says in Colossians 3, it's a command, but listen to the promise at the end. Okay, If then you have been raised with Christ, seek things that are above. So Paul is giving advice. He's saying, listen, don't think about the world. Don't focus on the world. Focus on things that are from God. Where Christ is seated, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. And now, that, if you stop right there, that's a bootstraps verse. That's saying, okay, now get to it. But listen to why we can do this. Listen to how we can do this. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. The, the very replacement of, of our broken heart that can't follow God, that can't think about real things, has been replaced by the power of Jesus Christ. And the power of the Holy Spirit. And so we are now attuned to something that will make us more real. The sixth conclusion from the passage is that unbelief begets sin and evil, and this is still the case. But the fact that we've been given faith, we've been given belief, we've been given a new heart, we've been woken up to the realities means that, that we can overcome evil and sin in our lives. You see, the only way to overcome sin in any form of evil, there's one essential answer. The, the, the lowest common denominator here is believe in Jesus. Without a belief in Jesus, no sin is conquered. No evil can be overcome. I think the seventh conclusion really brings it all home, at least for me. Here we saw a people whose hearts were still corrupted, who could not accept God's gracious gifts, who refused to obey His commandments, who followed after other gods because they followed after other gods. They became as evil as those other gods. They sacrificed their own children on the altar. And in the end, what happened? Their sin was punished because they were guilty of it. 
And still, to this day, guess what sin is? Sin is punished. That's a problem we have to overcome. Yes, Jesus has done all these beautiful things for us. We still sin. We are sinners. So what of it now? Does that mean we're going to be punished? Does that mean God punishes us? Well, here's the deal. That problem does stand. We are sinners, all of us, but God, you must understand, this is the Gospel. God has already turned His face away from your sin, from my sin. God has looked at my sin and He has turned and abandoned the one in shame who bore those sins. That's already occurred. Matthew 27 is recounting the crucifixion of Jesus. And listen to this. It's unique to the Matthew account. Listen to this recalling from the story from Matthew. About the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus is crying this out. The the only perfect man to ever have lived. The the God-man, God in the flesh, is crying out to God the Son, is crying out to God the Father, why have you forsaken me? You see, when Jesus arrived, there wasn't this cosmic, just kidding about sin. Just kidding, oh, it's all good, you're all good, come on in. No. The full wrath of God, the full wrath of God was poured out on my sin and your sin in the very person of Jesus Christ on the cross. If we throttle back on the wrath of God, I know it's an uncomfortable topic, if we throttle back on it and say, well, I don't don't know about that, then God becomes unjust because sin has not been paid for. But, if we allow God to have that attribute, yes, God has wrath against things that are wrong. And if we allow Him to, 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 to be that in that moment, to be wrathful against sin, and we look at where He poured out that wrath, He did not pour it out on me. He did not pour it out on you. He poured it out on Himself in Jesus Christ, God the Son. He took the punishment of sin. And if we allow the wrath of God to be in its full, hot realness, and we see where He poured it out on Himself, on God the Son, His very own part of the Trinity, we should be amazed by that. We should see the, the very love that God has for us. Now, as we finish this sermon up, I want to make it clear, we deserve exile. We deserve what the Israelites endured. We deserve to be booted right out of the family of God. Scattered. We deserve that. Why? Because we are sinners. Because we, in our natural state, cannot pursue God. We, in fact, hate God. But a more permanent, beautiful solution has been offered to us. Do you see? We aren't left with with fallen human kings. We've been given a perfect king. We're not left with this kind of wishy-washy, if I obey, if I don't obey, promised land that I may keep, if there's a blessing or a curse. No, we're given a, a promised eternal dwelling free from pain and sin. And and more relevant to even our lives now, 
We're not left to, to obey God's commandments with the same old rotten heart that we've had when we were born. No, we've been given a revived heart that can actually respond to God's good, gracious gifts and follow Him and love Him and be committed to Him. We've been given those things. So the end result is different for us. The end result's different for us. We will never be exiled, church. We will never be scattered. No political movement, no tragedy, no pandemic, no law, no, no human or demonic power can separate us from the love of God, let alone one another. We have been brought together and we stand firm as a bonded family, the family of God. And, and in this time of separation, we must understand that we stand together not because we share a denomination or skin color or a socioeconomic status or we are citizens of the same country or county or city. We stand together not because we belong to the same political party. We stand together, we are bonded together not because we, we agree on whether you should wear a mask or not in public. None of those things are why we are bonded together. Why are we standing together? Why are we connected forever? We're connected forever because of Jesus Christ. That promise that we are together, that we are loved, that we are secure, has been given to us by Jesus. And, and He secures it. How? How can we know we will never lose that thing? Because He has given us a renewed heart. Jesus Christ secures the promise by changing human hearts. Praise His name. Now, if you're out there this morning and you've not ever heard this this way, it's interesting to you, I want to tell you this message. The, the kingdom of God is open to anyone and everyone. Anyone and everyone's welcome. And if you want to know how that could be possible, I'd love to talk to you about it. Please email me. Uh, my email is ransom at graceprezarp.org and that prez is P-R-E-S. I'd love nothing more than to to have a phone conversation or Zoom or something, uh, FaceTime, whatever, uh, to talk to you about that. The kingdom of God. These promises that we're talking about where you can have a changed human heart and partake in this eternal gathering with the saints and with God forever. It's open to anyone and everyone. Let me pray for us. Lord, thank You for Your beautiful Gospel. Thank You for how You revealed Your salvation plan to us. I pray, God, that You would be with these words in a mighty way, press them into our hearts, help us to have assurance. For those of us who are in the church who have made a profession of faith, help us to know that we are bonded together forever and that promise is sure because You have changed our hearts. The work You did changed us. Therefore, we can be partakers in it. And for those who have not bent their knee to Lord Jesus to, uh, to be saved, I pray that You would convict their hearts, give them uh, an eating anxiety that helps them to be motivated to seek out the answers that they so desire. We love You, Lord. Thank You so much for Your Word, Old and New Testament. We pray all these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.